It's summer in Paris, and crowds have gathered in Picpus Cemetery. On this July 4th, the French watched as many numbers of men marched through their town. These new soldiers had been absent in most of this war to end all wars, and it had been a sore spot amongst the Allies, but at this moment it was a relief to see these young men head toward the Western Front. General John J. Pershing knew the import of America's entry into France. There had been many a parade and celebration, and they had marched past the tomb of Napoleon, and the Americans were headed to one more spot. French soldiers, recently back from the front, some of their uniforms threadbare, walked alongside their new reinforcements. It was the Americans. They were here. Pershing had asked to be taken to the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette, not realizing the hero of two worlds was buried in a very small cemetery. Inside the walls, a platform had hastily been thrown together, draped in red, white, and blue from both countries. Pershing couldn't speak French, and although Colonel Charles E. Stanton was a bit more fluent, he decided to stick to the mother tongue when he gave his remarks on behalf of Pershing. The message still seemed to carry its full weight, regardless of the language. The fact cannot be forgotten that your nation was our friend when America was struggling for existence, when a handful of brave and patriotic people who were determined to uphold the rights their creator governed them with, that France in the person of Lafayette came to our aid, in words and deeds. The speech went on for a long time in the heat with only a few understanding and translating to their surrounding countrymen. But all seemed to understand this promise fulfilled. As Stanton turned to stare at the grave of a man who had a foot firmly planted between two worlds, and never once had he doubted that someday America would return to help France in its hour of need, even one this long after his death. Stanton turned to the grave, lifted his arms, and bellowed, Lafayette? We are here. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis of the Lafayette, Episode 1. The name Lafayette has graced cities, counties, roadways, and schools around the United States since the beginning of America. Uh, the name Lafayette, or in variation Fayette, appears all over the country, and the story of the Marquis de Lafayette was given a second life by his appearance in the Tony Award-winning musical Hamilton. David Diggs even won a Tony for Best Featured Actor in a Musical for his fast-rapping, heavy-accented appearance as America's favorite fighting Frenchman. He appears on stage for only the first half of the musical, but it's a very patriotic portrayal of the French aristocrat talking about overthrowing the French monarchy and singing for freedom for his homeland. But the real Marquis de Lafayette would eventually be accused of being too cautious and protective of the monarchy. He spent a good deal of his youth alongside Louis and Marie Antoinette, and it would be his relationship with the pair that would ultimately lead to his imprisonment and exile. Lafayette's path after the events of Hamilton could not be called easy, but it would encompass a lot of ground where he would watch leader after leader fall. One of my TikTok followers once referred to the Marquis de Lafayette as, quote, history's Forrest Gump, and it's really a perfect name for a man whose influence would be felt across centuries. 
Every hindrance in his life was always, as far as he was concerned, simply one more stumbling block on his way to a free France. On the 6th of September, 1757, Lafayette was born to his father, Michel, and his mother, Marie-Louise. For such a small child, he would carry not only a large legacy, but also a large name. Marie-Joseph Paul Vise Rouge Gibert de Mautier, the Marquis de Lafayette. Thankfully, we will only refer to him as Lafayette from here on out. Of his lengthy name, he wrote, It's not my fault that I was baptized like a Spaniard. Lafayette was born into an aristocratic family that would have afforded him a life so comfortable that he would never have to wander in search of nobler thoughts. He would suffer his first great loss just before his second birthday when his father, Michel, was killed during the Seven Years' War by a cannonball. He inherited the title, but the estate would, for the time being, go to his heartbroken mother, who left Lafayette in the care of his relatives until he could come to Paris. He spent his youth running through his family grounds, carefree and full of life. He would have been an excellent outdoorsman, able to live off the land alone. Lafayette's family knew he would be trained in swordsmanship and military life as his father had been before him, but he also wanted to be a knight. A hero. A musketeer. At the age of 10, those living near his estate remember a 10-year-old Lafayette hearing tales of a magnificent beast that was ravaging livestock. And, and upon hearing the terror of local villagers, the child headed into the woods to kill the creature. Unfortunately, he found the hunter of the storied beast who had already killed it. Sadly, it was not a large, terrifying, multi-headed beast, just a small wolf. Every element of the young child's life was carefully crafted. At the age of 13, he would be commissioned as an officer, a black musketeer. A bride would be handpicked for him, the second daughter of the Duc d'Ayen, Adrienne. Adrienne was as smart as she was beautiful. He was hand-selected to be her husband, and it was lucky they found each other amiable and became devoted to one another because they had no say in the marriage contract and did not meet until the wedding. Her dowry was 200,000 livres, approximately $2 million in today's currency. But prior to the fulfillment of this contract, tragedy would strike two more times for Lafayette in rapid succession. He would lose both his mother and grandfather. He was now an orphan, but the deaths of his last two surviving relatives had made Lafayette very wealthy. He was also very lonely. Lafayette, as a black musketeer in training, was learning how to guard the king and spent his days in hand-to-hand combat, as well as learning the other niceties of high society. Lafayette was reading in the ideas of the Enlightenment after his daily duties to the king himself, and in 1773, 15-year-old Lafayette was enrolled into the prestigious Academy de Versailles, where all the young princes and princesses studied. Because of his noble bloodline and upcoming noble marriage, King Louis XV signed Lafayette and Adrian's marriage contract. Adrienne was three years younger, and she had fallen head over heels in love with the older Lafayette, who, by all accounts, treated her kindly, but almost like a young sibling given her youth. They were married on the 11th of April, 1774, as a wedding gift. His father-in-law did promise to make Lafayette a captain when he turned 18. The marriage for now would go unconsummated per the insistence of both Adrienne's mother and Lafayette himself. His bride was only 13. A month later, the king would die, quickly throwing his far too young grandson onto the throne as the newly minted Louis XVI alongside his wife, Marie Antoinette. 
Uh, the couple were both friends of Lafayette. He had once stepped on her foot while dancing, and she giggled as he blushed and apologized profusely. He did always feel a bit hurt by this exchange to her brash Austrian manners, but he always treated her with reverence. Lafayette always felt awkward at court and was always described as being a bit out of place. He, in fact, found it sweeter to be with Adrian, and the pair consummated the marriage some months later. He cared dearly for his little doll, and she was very much in love with her real-life knight. Unfortunately, something else would come first in his heart, and Adrian would have to learn to adjust even as she became pregnant with her first child. Oh, Lafayette would break their marital vows quickly with the first of many a foolish encounter. He became crestfallen with guilt, especially as Adrian learned of his deceit. I would never again stop trying to demonstrate my firm, tender love of the woman I had the good fortune to marry, he would write. But Lafayette also became enamored with something else. In this case, it was an ideology. In 1775, shots were fired in Lexington, Massachusetts, and the ideas of the French Enlightenment threatened the hold Britain held over its colonies. The world was becoming swept up in the American Revolution, and many French soldiers wanted to volunteer for American service. Whether for these ideals or to avenge hundreds of years of conflict against their mortal enemy, I cannot say. Lafayette had also become a recent initiate of the Freemasons, and while his upbringing seemed one of privilege that would put him out of touch with the common colonial pauper, Lafayette talked a great game. Such a glorious cause had never rallied the attention of mankind. Oppressors and oppressed would receive a powerful lesson. But it was an encounter with the younger brother of King George III that would encourage Lafayette to support the American cause with or without the permission of his sovereign. In August of 1775, Lafayette attended a dinner party at which Great Britain's Duke of Gloucester, younger brother of King George III, was the guest of honor. Gloucester and his brother were already enraged at one another and had fallen out, but he took the opportunity to mock his brother's policies in the American colonies, praising these enlightened revolutionaries. And to hear the king's own brother speak of the Americans with such admiration set Lafayette's heart on its course. He would head straight to Paris to see about heading to the Americas. If not to avenge his father's death, it would be nice to at least watch the British lose a few men. So he thought. After his 18th birthday, Adrian gave birth to the couple's first child, a daughter named Henriette. And unfortunately, in his first attempt to cross the Atlantic, his supervisor denied his request. Louis XVI, still new in his regency, did not want to anger Britain. France was still struggling, but... Congress came to court to request arms. America did not have the armaments to match Great Britain. But France, France did. Louis listened to his advisors who pointed out how the country was still in financial restraints after the death of his grandfather. And yet, Louis sat spellbound after the colonies sent person after person pleading for France's help with promises of trade deals. Lafayette learned that his commander planned to send some soldiers to America, and he ran to volunteer. General de Broglie immediately turned Lafayette down, saying he had witnessed his father's death and would not be the person who destroyed the family tree, leaving Adrienne with only a daughter. Despite the very blatant instruction, Lafayette spoke with a recruit, who clearly had no idea about de Broglie's orders, nor did he let Lafayette's obvious youth and inexperience stop him from allowing the 19-year-old to sign up for the Continental Army. Silas Dean allowed Lafayette to volunteer for the Continental Army. He had never stepped foot on a real battlefield, nor did he speak a word 
of English. Lafayette told no one of his plans. That is, until they discovered what he was up to. The first round of French recruits were turned around and the British planned to blockade French ports. Lafayette's draft card was deemed essentially useless. King Louis XVI ordered Lafayette to remain in France, but the defiant, headstrong teenager ignored him and set sail for America in early 1777. France was treading carefully to not step on Britain's toes, but it was Lafayette's suggestion to General de Broglie and the Baron de Cobb that it could be possible to serve in an unaffiliated sense. De Broglie, along with de Cobb, set sights on usurping George Washington, but Lafayette had no clue. So, in a sense, Lafayette's naivete was making their escapade completely possible with little to no blame assigned to themselves. De Cobb and Lafayette signed recruitment letters for America again with Silas Dean once more, who accepted them with no hesitation. Adrienne became pregnant again with her second child shortly thereafter, and it was during Carnival that she revealed her condition to her husband. It was the same week that Lafayette purchased a cargo ship, La Victoire, Victory. Lafayette and his wife would attend a ball hosted by the Queen. Two weeks later, he would make up a lie to his wife, saying he had to go to Paris. A day later, his father-in-law received a letter. Lafayette was gone. You will be astonished, my dear papa, at what I have to say to you, he wrote. Adrian was heartbroken, devastated. Her husband had not even told her he was leaving. Partly to protect her and partly because he was a child himself with no idea of how to properly treat his wife, he would recall later. When Lafayette reached the colonies, La Victoire landed on a beach in South Carolina, far from the city of Charleston, because it was blockaded by the British. A lack of English proved for an awkward and bizarre first encounter with some locals. He wanted the men to understand that at his own cost, he came to them with supplies. And after a momentary game of charades, the colonists realized this man was bringing them gifts. The goods were quickly unloaded and the ship was turned right back around to France to reload. Lafayette and the rest of his men stayed on shore where they showed the locals their draft letters and asked to be taken to Philadelphia to see Congress. After the treacherous journey, Lafayette and company arrived. It's July 27th, and just over a year ago, the country had declared its independence. Since then, the battles were hard fought with little reward. General George Washington had lost New York during the Battle of Brooklyn, and it still stung as the British held the major seaport. Lafayette was just one among many foreign volunteers to arrive at Congress's door, but they waved him off. He left with plans to return and try again, but then he was summoned because a cash-strapped government noticed that he had a title. And someone who has a title likely has access to money. Lafayette met with Congress and told them that he had the right to exact two favors— one was to serve them at his own expense, and the other to serve as a volunteer, meaning they would not have to pay. Music to the government's ears. It was outside of Congress on August 5, 1777, that Lafayette would meet the man who would become like his father, General George Washington. 
Now, of course, Washington had been duped by General de Broglie into thinking that Lafayette had received approval from Louis to come to the States and volunteer, but no matter the deception at play, Washington liked the young man, calling him a young nobleman of a great family, as well as peppering in words like exceedingly beloved. Congress finally agreed that Lafayette could serve, but only gave him his rank because of his noble title. Washington told him that he will take Lafayette under his wing, but will only give him a command when he he feels he is ready. But at the heart of their relationship was a healthy mutual respect. Lafayette had never known the love of a father, and despite being the father of a country, Washington had never known the love of a son. As he invited Lafayette along, Washington warned the young man, I cannot provide you with the comfort of the French court. That was an understatement. Congress was struggling financially, which seems nothing new to the average modern American, but with British blockades, rations, and high cost, most of the Continental Army's requests were being denied. Lafayette, who barely spoke English well enough to request a salary for his companions, was done when he was immediately told no. He paid for the return tickets of most of the Frenchmen he had bought with him out of pocket, inadvertently destroying the dreams of de Broglie and de Kalb. And if he thought that was bad, he had not yet seen the army. The Continental Army was threadbare and incompetent. Lafayette estimated around 11,000 ragtag men. He noted Washington was embarrassed, even defensive of their appearance. Well, despite his poor English, Lafayette conveyed that he was here to learn and to help. In experience aside, he was pulled into the war room with his fellow major generals and Washington's 22-year-old aide-de-camp, Alexander Hamilton. Meanwhile, DeCab and de Borley were so enraged that Lafayette had been chosen to sit at the table with Washington, DeCab went so far as to threaten blackmail. Baron DeCab sent an angry letter to Congress threatening to expose their corruption in their recruitment practices, specifically Silas Dean. He demanded a commission or he would expose Dean for unlawfully recruiting Lafayette, saying that there was no way Lafayette had known what he was signing up for, saying, quote, he doesn't even speak English. The blackmail worked. DeKalb was named Major General and would join the fray wholeheartedly, throwing his support to George Washington. In the meantime, Washington had received intelligence that Howe's troops were headed to Pennsylvania to capture Philadelphia. The Continental Army headed to Brandywine Creek, and it's here that Lafayette would receive his first bit of action on the battlefield, and though he served valiantly, it was an eye-opener for the sheltered aristocrat. Lafayette took a group of officers from south to Birmingham Hill, and he arrived in the heat of battle. The soldiers were beginning to break down in panic, and Lafayette immediately began trying to calm and reassure them with affirmation of their skills, but the chaos was beginning to unravel the troops. Their bayonets out, soldiers were dropping right and left as they met the pressure of Lafayette to move forward. The pressure applied did not work, and the young soldiers began panicking and breaking, and it led to confusion that caused many to be hurt or killed. Counting his losses, Lafayette initiated a retreat. Horses were falling with their soldiers on top, the number of dead mounting, and then Lafayette felt a sharp pain in his leg. He had been hit. Thankfully, the wound was not severe, although gangrenous infection was always a concern on a battlefield. He made it to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where he was held for a month to recover, and thankfully the only real indication that he had been wounded was a scar. Even the field doctors noted how quickly the young Frenchman healed. 
The surgeons are astonished by the rate at which it heals. They are in ecstasy every time they dress it and maintain that it is the most beautiful thing in the world. I, myself, find it very foul, very tedious, and rather painful, and there is no accounting for taste, he wrote to Adrienne. Despite the minor setback, Lafayette would always remember Brandywine as his first taste of glory, and he would return many years later to honor the anniversary of that battle that initiated him as an essential character in the Revolutionary War story. Just a month later, he would be victorious alongside Nathaniel Green, defeating a significantly larger number of Hessians in Gloucester, New Jersey. Lafayette began working with Native Americans of the Oneida tribe outside Quebec for assistance as he and Washington waited to build the army. The plan was to stage an invasion of Quebec via Albany, New York. The Oneida tribe, as with many indigenous groups who assist the Continental Army, often do not receive the attention that the European allies get. Lafayette sought to speak with someone high-ranking in the tribe, which shocked them. And it goes without saying that the majority of Native Americans were skeptical of the Continental Army, and rightly so. In May of 1778, Oneida warriors arrived at Valley Forge, and there was a palpable feeling of confusion and wariness on both sides of the aisle. The landscape had been brutal on the Americans, who had barely survived the winter, and the hard-won support of the Oneida tribe would prove priceless. They knew the land, and that knowledge of survival was invaluable. Making the most of the untamed American wilderness, you see, would be one of the most important factors in who would walk away from this war victorious. As the Oneida warriors made their way to Washington's headquarters, they were greeted with an artillery salute. Tussar and Oneida, who spoke English, translated the general's commands. The soldiers were to join Lafayette on a campaign to Philadelphia. Intelligence was saying the British would retreat to New York and that Lafayette was to launch an attack on the rear guard. In Philadelphia, a British deserter told Lafayette where the British were camped and how many men they had. 9,000 British soldiers were very aware of Lafayette's movements and were looking forward to capturing the infamous Frenchman. On May 20th, the Oneidas and Continental Army waited and heard the sound of soldiers marching and immediately began firing. The British cavalry was ordered to charge, but as Lafayette stood stunned watching the horses come quickly towards him, our hero prepared to meet his maker, or at least King George III, as a prisoner of war. But then he was stunned by a bellowing cry. The Oneidas, severely outnumbered, began attacking the British and their horses. Following soon, the American riflemen began firing. Upon hearing the sounds of fire in the distance, Washington immediately mobilized to help hold off the Redcoats. The Oneidas' courage and intense bravado frightened the British soldiers. The British weren't expecting to be charged head-on let alone by a group of Native Americans. As they bravely bombarded the soldiers, the Americans spent shell after shell, and the British, frazzled, were forced to retreat. It was a victory. Sadly, Tussar, the Oneida translator, was killed. The story of the Oneida's bravery and devotion is a tragic one, frequently lost to history. Many forget their sacrifice, and after the dust had settled, it appeared that helping the Americans was harmful. Because of their devotion to Washington, the Mohawks and other tribes killed many Oneidas in retribution. The Oneida were given land grants, but overall, history seldom remembers the absolute courage they demonstrated in the heat of battle. In February of 1778, 
France and the United States of America signed the Treaty of Amity and Commerce and the Treaty of Alliance in Paris. The treaty showed that France recognized the United States as an independent nation, and the alliance pitted the pair together against Great Britain and stipulated American independence as a condition of peace. It was a giant step to legitimacy. And then in 1779, as the war raged on, Lafayette, with Washington's approval, decided it was time to go back to France on leave. He had worked to quell tensions between nervous Americans who were worried they were going to be abandoned by the French, but but he knew he needed to return and act as an advisor for the Americans at French court. It was time for a little diplomacy and time to see his wife. As Lafayette reached France in 1779, he had a group awaiting him. And as soon as he arrived, he was placed under arrest for violating the king's order and going to America. It was more a slap on the wrist for Lafayette, who served a total of eight days in his comfortable mansion in confinement. And as he waited for permission to return to his beloved friends, Adrian gave birth to the couple's only son, Georges Washington Lafayette. God's Favorite is a bi-weekly history podcast where we look at some of the people who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. Join us in two weeks as Lafayette returns to America to help wrap up the war at Yorktown. Sources for today's episode include Lafayette by Harlow Giles Unger, Hero of Two Worlds, The Marquis de Lafayette in the Age of Revolution by Mike Duncan, History.com's biography on Lafayette. The Providence Journal's article on Lafayette at Brandywine. David Clary's adopted son, Washington Lafayette and the friendship that saved the revolution. And remember, you can always follow us on TikTok over at my account, Melissa Fairlady, or hang out with us over on God's Favorites, a history podcast on Facebook. The show is written and produced by me. I'm Melissa. Special thanks to those on Patreon who make it possible for us to buy our resources and help support authors. And of course, costs for streaming and distribution. You can find our Patreon under God's Favorites, a history podcast. And the link is in my TikTok bio. Can't wait to pick back up with this story. See you later, friends.